Good afternoon everyone, thank you for coming along today. I thought it might be interesting to focus our attention just for a short time on some of the meanings of a few Bible words which often are misconstrued by people and perhaps even interpreted slightly in the wrong way. And particularly so if you have a, a sort of casual view of scripture and you kind of know something about it but there are some concepts that you're not entirely sure of and what they really uh, mean in essence. So it's to help someone who's having that kind of difficulty really um, because we do find that some of the views on hell, immortality and soul can be very strongly held by people but perhaps the reasoned logic as to why that might be isn't always apparent. So what I want to do is to allow the Bible this afternoon to sort of show us exactly what these words mean. So we have here, as you can see, hell. And we find that in the Old Testament Hebrew, it's the word that's used is Sheol. And in New Testament Greek, it's Hades or Gehenna. So there's already in the sort of Hebrew and Greek two differing sort of ideas of words that are used to describe this. But what does the word hell conjure up in our minds? You know, do we think of perhaps fire and brimstone, um, eternal flames, that type of thing? Do we think perhaps about eternal torment? Um, you know, the place where some people might think the devil uh, abides, you know, in hell. Are these some of the concepts that we might think about? Uh, is it the place where evil sinners are sent? That's a very strongly held belief by some people. Or is actually the Bible explanation far simpler than all of these uh, particular notions that I've mentioned? Well, let's find out. Because this word hell, as we've suggested, comes in the Old and New Testament. And... Um, this idea that it's a place of torment or of difficulty of some shape or form doesn't really become apparent when we look at the evidence. Now, the word Sheol is generally used to indicate the place where the bodies of the dead are laid to rest. So, if in practical terms we consider where a dead body might be buried we would assume automatically, wouldn't we, that it would be in a grave. That would be the first thing we would think of. A body normally, very speedily if at all possible, is placed in a grave. A place beneath the surface of the earth. So then, in thinking of that, the true meaning of Sheol is the grave or the pit Rather like this kind of tomb that you might see in the Middle East, it's a place where a body would be put into and left clearly to decompose and all the other things that happen with it. So Sheol is the grave or the pit, a covered place. And you can see by this little area here that this would be covered eventually by a stone and sealed in effect. So therefore, it's a covered place where bodies are kept and there's a safety within that, isn't there? Um, where they are you know, kept away from normal people uh, in the course of everyday life. We tend to place them there for all the right reasons of disease and so on. Now, the authorised version of the Old Testament uh, also talks of this Sheol or the pit in a covered place. Um, but it also mentions the grave and hell. Now, in 31 occasions, grave and hell are intertranslated. It can be either or. So, grave or hell are effectively one and the same, it seems. And it's only three occasions in the Old Testament that the word pit is used. So, Sheol, Sheol is this common Old Testament term uh, for a place where these bodies would be laid to rest and allowed to rot or decay. So let's look at a couple of verses in scripture then that confirm this kind of idea. We want to look first at Psalm 49. Psalm 49, and we're looking particularly at verse 12. 
Psalm 49, verse 12. Nevertheless, man, though in honour, does not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish, and of their posterity who approve their sayings. Like sheep they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave, far from their dwelling. So that's a very basic understanding, isn't it, of this idea of Sheol or the grave where a body is laid. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave and covered over. And it's a kind of strange phrase, but death shall feed on them. But it's a bit like that, isn't it, as the body decays. And it's a it's a sad end in a lot of ways, but it happens to us all. But the word grave here in verse 14 is that very word sheol that we've mentioned before um, in both occasions, particularly in this uh, particular psalm. So if we look now at the prophecy of Ezekiel, we have a description of what God would do to the pharaohs of Egypt and they're described, the pharaohs of Egypt, like they're a kind of cedar tree. And if you know anything about cedar tree, it grows beautifully. It's a, it's a stunning tree to look at um, and very often tall and straight. But uh, they're described as a, a cedar tree because they prided themselves, didn't they, the Egyptians, and all their abilities and what they could do. Um, they were empire builders, weren't they? They'd created this incredible wealth and huge amounts of building work that was done in the times of the pharaohs, um, still existing in some parts of Egypt to this day. But they prided themselves in all of these things, and it was, you know, something they really relied upon. But if you look at Ezekiel chapter 31 and verse 15, we find what God says about them. Ezekiel 31 in verse 15. Thus says the Lord God, In the day when it went down to hell, I caused mourning. I covered the deep because of it. I restrained its rivers and the great waters were held back. I caused Lebanon to mourn for it, and all the trees of the field wilted because of it. I made the nations shake at the sound of its fall, when I cast it down to hell, together with those who descend into the pit, and all the trees of Eden, the choice and the best of Lebanon, all that drink water, were comforted in the depths of the earth. They also went down to hell with it, with those slain by the sword, and those who were its strong arm dwelt in its shadows among the nations. To which of the trees in Eden will you then be likened in glory and greatness? Yet you shall be brought down with the trees of Eden to the depths of the earth. You shall lie in the midst of the uncircumcised with those slain by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude, says the Lord God. So it's a picture, isn't it, of a huge destruction for Egypt. The prophet Ezekiel is using here ideas of the grave and the pit and describing how Egypt's warriors and pharaohs would be buried with their swords in the nether parts of the earth. It's quite a stark picture, really. There's no indication here, is there? There's nothing that says that they would suffer in some shape or form any kind of eternal torment or any kind of fires of hell. There's no mention of that. It's effectively just buried in a pit, in a grave, and gone. And if we think of Egypt covered in sand these days, half of it is buried, isn't it? I don't think we've quite realised just how many cities there were in Egypt in those times. Someone recently has put a software package together that is revealing through the sand the amount of places that there are in Egypt that have never been discovered. And it is incredible. All up the length of the Nile, there are cities on either side, two and threefold outwards, all buried in the sand. All these Egyptians with them, gone and it seems almost lost forever. And the lady said at the time when she was looking at all this, 
it would take you 20 lifetimes to dig all this up. There is so much material there. Quite an incredible thing. But this is what God said would happen to them. They would be buried like that in this pit. And so we know, don't we, that we've discovered mummified bodies of pharaohs. Those warriors of Egypt too. We, we see sometimes programmes on that about how they've been embalmed and buried in those great big tombs, the fascinating pyramids and the various views that they had of the afterlife and what that might be. And some of them are beautifully decorated, aren't they? And yet, in the end, all that pride of Egypt, all that glory that they thought they had, has been brought to absolutely nothing when you look at the country now. They were, in essence, in their time, evil and corrupt men, many of them. And God says they would be cast down to hell, into this pit, into the graves of the earth, buried with their spears and swords. Well, of course, that's very true. And many other amazing things. But it gives us this indication, doesn't it, that hell isn't this terrible place of torment, somewhere where the devil exists, or somewhere where fire and brimstone are continual. It's purely the grave or the pit, just as God has said here would happen to the Egyptians. Now when we start to think about the New Testament and this idea of Hades or Gehenna for hell, then we move on to a different sort of area to some degree. We're thinking in terms really of, yet again, a covered place, a grave or the pit. So the meaning, whether it's hell, Gehenna, Sheol, is all basically the same. It's a covered place for a body. Now a very good example of Hades can be found in the Apostle Peter's speech on the day of Pentecost. And it highlights this great difficulty in believing that hell is a place where sinners go, as we shall see. So Acts chapter 2 and at verse 29. Can hell be specifically for sinners? That would be the question some people might ask themselves. Acts chapter 2 and verse 29. Here's Peter's words. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses." So that's Peter's declaration at Pentecost, all about the idea of the Lord Jesus coming and what David's view of that was. And Peter here in this chapter, speaking of King David, we have this idea also given to us in Psalm 16 and verse 10 that, that David wouldn't be left in corruption, that his four runner, as it were, David, would die, be buried, but that the Lord Jesus Christ would not see corruption and would not die in the same way as others might do. He was held, as it were, by the power of God from decaying bodily in that tomb in the New Testament when we have it described to us that he never saw corruption. So, it suggests that Christ himself in these verses looking at that projected idea of the Lord who would come it says doesn't it his soul was not left in Hades or hell and his flesh did not see corruption that's the scriptural statement about the Lord and it's factually correct fantastic 
quite unbelievable in some senses. But we know about Joseph of Arimathea, don't we, and how he provided that tomb for our Lord after his death. But this was the Son of God, the only perfect man who ever lived. And he went down into hell, into the grave, into a tomb. Jesus in hell? Who would say that was right? Sounds terrible, doesn't it? But that's the case, because it's just the grave. So then, we know, don't we, that of course God raised him on the third day. So then, if Jesus descended into hell, or the grave, and was raised the third day, how then can hell be a place of torment or of fire and brimstone if the Lord Jesus Christ went there. It can't be. But because Jesus did no sin, death could not hold him and he was raised back to life by the power of God. The only perfect man who ever lived. But because we are all sinners, we are subject to death and indeed the grave. So hell, once again, surely can only mean the grave or the pit. And that's exactly what scripture is telling us. So then, the other word for hell in the New Testament is Gehenna. And this relates to the valley of Hinnom, just outside the walls of Jerusalem in effect. Uh, it was a steep hillside called Tophet, and uh, it's a geological location, in fact, well known. But it was very particularly in times past a place where false worship took place in and around Jerusalem. It's also a place where there were terrible practices of idol worship going on, and it became so abhorrent to the Jews that eventually it became a place of burning anything that was deemed to be unclean. So perhaps animals that weren't suitable for sacrifice and perhaps were lame and, and, and were dying, they would be burned in this fire over the walls of Jerusalem. But that wasn't all. Not just carcasses of animals. Even criminals were thrown over this wall to die in the fire of Gehenna. It was a common practice to dispose of things in this valley of Hinnom. And it was horrible because the place smelt continually of burning flesh and it became synonymous with death and destruction because of that very reason. So it's quite a thought, isn't it, that Gehenna alluded to in the New Testament, is a place actually where Christ himself spoke of, but it was recognised as this place of idol worship, of death and destruction, and the fires never went out. They burned continually. And that's where people get ideas of hellfire and the constant flame burning. It comes from that idea that outside the walls of Jerusalem, in Gehenna, these fires kept on burning. And of course, when that happens, you smell it all the time. It infiltrates your nostrils and you remember what it means for those who perhaps have died there. Tragic circumstances. And Jesus himself also spoke to his disciples about the judgments of God and how they related to, for instance, a better view of life. The judgments of God could reveal to you, looking at them, how wonderful the kingdom of God could become. You know, if you'd lost a limb and you struggled in some way, Jesus said it was better to lose that limb, to enter into the kingdom of God, even if that had to be the case. It was better to cut it off. Anything that offended, 
someone else perhaps, then remove it in order to enter into the kingdom of God. Because you knew that the opportunities in that kingdom to come were far better than the dire circumstances of being left to man's devices and those criminals and those animals that were burned with fire. Let's look at Mark's Gospel. Get a little picture of this. Mark's Gospel in chapter 9. This is actually part of the wall here that they used to throw all the stuff over at one time. Uh, not not there anymore, thankfully. It doesn't happen these days, but you know it's quite a horrible sort of thought to think that that was what happened in days gone by. Mark chapter 9 and verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where there are worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. And so it goes on, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. So here Jesus himself is, in effect, talking about the fires of Gehenna within the context of what he's saying here. You know, into that hell where the fire is not quenched. Because it was in the psyche of the people around Jerusalem that this happened day and daily to other people. So we can see where this idea of hell and the eternal fire comes from. That's the concept. But it's not one that is a devil thing or anything like that. But it is frightening, isn't it, when Jesus talks about such body parts. But he knew his audience understood these concepts. And that's why he spoke in that way. When we look at Acts chapter 2, as we did earlier, and Peter's speech at Pentecost, it, in a sense, highlights, doesn't it, that other possible question we, we need to ask ourselves. If you remember, he suggested, and this was the word he, he used in the scriptures, that Christ's soul had not been left in hell. Well, that begs the question then, doesn't it? What does soul mean? What's that all about? And here we have the word soul. It means a living being or life. Now, it may be a surprise, but the words immortal soul don't appear anywhere in the Bible together at any point in time. You can get the word soul and you can get the word immortal, but never side by side. And, as we shall see shortly, souls die. They are not immortal. So then, what is a soul? What really does it mean? Do we have an immortal soul? Many people believe that we do. But what does the Bible say about this word? Let's look at Genesis chapter 2 for a moment. And just remind ourselves right at the very beginning what the word soul really means. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became, and my version says, a living being. Yours may perhaps say soul. So, by the breath of God, man became animated into this living, breathing being. That's in essence what the word soul means. And it's very clear, isn't it, that that's the case. When that breath of life was given, man lived. And when that breath is taken away, man dies. He ceases to breathe that air. 
that brings life and life is extinguished so without breath we can't survive and the psalmist David speaking of the judgments of God when for instance the ten plagues came upon Israel and the Egyptians although Israel thankfully were exempt from them all but when it happened at that time and Egypt were very many of them killed at the time David speaking of that time speaks in Psalm 78 in this way let's just look at it for a moment Psalm 78 in verse 50 Psalm 78 and verse 50 God made a path for his anger he did not spare their soul from death but gave their life over to the plague at that time. So, God made a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave their life over to the plague. So David understood this relationship between the soul and life this living and breathing and they're one and the same thing in effect but some might suggest that an immortal soul lives after we die but as we've suggested the words immortal soul don't appear in the bible at any point in time it's not really a scriptural idea at all It's a man-made concept that really has no proper foundation in the Bible. But if we turn to Ezekiel chapter 18, we find this piece of information that may surprise. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20. Ezekiel 18 and verse 20 the soul who sins shall die the son shall not hear the guilt of the father nor the father bear the guilt of the son the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself but the vital bit for us is that very first phrase the soul who sins shall die so Souls can't be immortal if they sin and they die. Can't happen, can it? And that's because the soul is exactly the same as the living being. It's our existence. It's not something that comes after we die. It's purely our existence on the earth. We are living beings. And that's what the word soul means. Animated in effect. So, if they're not immortal, and they don't go on forever, and the word soul just means a living, breathing person who has life, in the New Testament, what does soul mean? What's the word? Well, soul is used about a hundred times. In the Greek it's rendered soul 58 times. Life 40 times and the mind three times so when Christ spoke to his disciples and asked them to deny themselves a road didn't he and take up their cross and follow him he went on to describe life and death and the situation of it and what it would mean and what it could bring and it's in Matthew's gospel in chapter 16 Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, and verse 25. Matthew 16, verse 25. 
For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Looks as if there are two different words, doesn't it, that are being used here. There's life and there's soul. And yet in the Greek, they're exactly the same word. So they're interchangeable in that sense. Life and soul are interchangeable. Other Bible translations sometimes recognise it differently and they use the word life on every occasion and other ones separate it out depending on what view perhaps the translator has on these things. But let's look at one final passage in scripture that highlights once again the judgments of God that we've talked about that happened with Egypt and, and in many occasions with others. But also God confirms this idea that souls die. It's Matthew in chapter 10. Matthew 10 and verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now that's a stark verse if ever there was one, isn't it? But what on earth does it mean? What's Jesus trying to tell us here? Well, firstly, the soul can be destroyed. That's very clear. Secondly, if a faithful servant is put to death, he will get his life or his soul back at the resurrection of the dead when Christ returns to the earth. That interchangeable word of life and soul you can be resurrected and being given life, the breath of life put back into you and you become reanimated under resurrection. That's the concept that's coming across here. So then, if you believe truly in the Son of God and all that he can do for each one of us and get baptised and truly believe there is an opportunity for resurrection from death back to life. That's the promise of God. But an unfaithful servant will be totally destroyed eventually in eternal death. In that judgment that will come upon all mankind. But it's symbolised here by the idea of hell, isn't it? But it's a reference once again to the fires of Gehenna and the judgment that that placed on people at that time. Cast into the fires of hell. It was death and the certainty of it for all time. But here it says his soul or life will perish and will never have any being again. That's the absolute eternal death for those who are judged by Christ at his return and are no longer suitable for the kingdom of God. That breath of life is extinguished forever. So souls can't be immortal unless they are transformed by the power of God where we as living beings can be revitalised and resurrected when Christ returns. The word soul just means life or a living being, our breathing existence. But when that breath is extinguished, we die. The soul, when we die, does not go on to live in some spirit-type world of any kind 
it's not a Bible concept up there somewhere in heaven or anywhere else. There is no evidence of that. Now back in the Garden of Eden, and I mentioned this earlier this morning, didn't we? When Adam and Eve sinned, God's judgment on mankind was that he could not live forever. He would be subject to death because of sin. And therefore man became mortal, a dying creature, because of that sin. However, the Bible does tell us that God himself is immortal. And it's in the epistle of the Apostle Paul that he wrote to Timothy, which again we looked at for a moment or two this morning, in chapter 1, that God is described as the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the Only Wise God. That's the whole divine nature of God himself, that he is immortal, living forever, eternal life. It's a divine attribute, really, to be unable to die. But Christ did not become immortal until after the resurrection. Important facts to think about. God is immortal. But can man gain immortality and live forever? Yes, he can. Through the power of God. So then. Question. This attribute of God of immortality. He also shares with the angels. Because they cannot die. And neither do angels sin. If they could. They would die. So the angels of God who are his messengers, who can appear like sometimes ordinary men, sometimes dressed in white, you know, visibly striking without any shadow of a doubt, but they have that extraordinary ability of having that divine nature where they cannot die. Let's look at some Bible verses to show the reality of God's immortality. And while we're at it, perhaps we can find out about someone whose life was changed from being mortal to one of eternal life. It's Psalm 90. Psalm 90 and verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth... Or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man to destruction and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past and like a watch in the night. That's the God we are dealing with. From everlasting to everlasting, all knowing knows the end from the beginning. It's quite an incredible concept. One we have difficulty getting our heads around, don't we? Because God just doesn't dwell in our time periods in that way. He is eternal. From everlasting to everlasting. It is hard, isn't it? A thousand years are just like a day to God. It's gone. How <laughs> quickly do the days go? It's frightening, isn't it? But it's a wonderful confirmation, isn't it, about what God is really about. And of course, also indicates in verse 3 this destruction that can come upon the children of men that they die so it's a difficult concept and it's one that can be hard to understand but the psalmist David acknowledges that God wants us to return to him he says you know return O children of men come to me and you will live and that really is a fantastic promise of God and one that we do well to take heed to. So in God's mercy, we can attain 
to eternal life in the kingdom of God on the earth once having been raised from the dead or at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's turn to Luke chapter 20. Luke 20 and verse 35. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die any more, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Isn't that brilliantly clear? It's fantastic, isn't it? Those who are raised from the dead can become equal in effect to the angels of God, sharing that divine nature and living forever. That's a fantastic promise, isn't it? But what about the Lord Jesus Christ himself? Was he born with a divine nature? And unable to die? Is Jesus, the Son of God, immortal? Well, of course, he was born, wasn't he, of a human parent in Mary, through intervention of God's Holy Spirit. Well, he must have been immortal then, surely. But that's not what the Bible says. The book of Hebrews tells us that Christ could not take on the nature of angels because he had to die upon that cross on Calvary. It's the book of Hebrews and chapter 2. Some of these verses are worth keeping in mind when you're talking to friends about these type of things. It can be difficult to negotiate sometimes, but they're useful verses to know. So it's Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So, Christ did not have immortality when he walked the earth with his disciples. Verse 16 of the same chapter also indicates for indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. That's Christ's priority. Isn't that interesting? We don't quite think of that concept too often, do we? That Jesus is there for you and I, very specifically. What a brilliant thing that is. Christ had our human frailties and weaknesses but never gave in to them. He didn't sin at any time in his life. And of course he is that direct descendant, isn't he? Of both Abraham and David. Right through the Old Testament lines into the New Testament and his mother Mary. But after his resurrection, Jesus was transformed into being Immortal, just like God. It's Philippians and chapter 2 that tells us. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7. Jesus made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ made himself of no reputation at all. He wasn't like those Egyptians, full of pride 
and all that they had achieved. That wasn't Christ's way. He took on him the status of a servant before God and other men. And Paul tells us he was in the likeness of a man. And because of that, he humbled himself and became obedient unto the death on the cross. These are not the actions of someone who can live forever. If you're immortal, you can't die. You wouldn't put yourself in that kind of situation. But Christ died on the cross and was buried in that tomb and raised back to life. Christ cannot be God either or part of him because he died and God cannot die. Christ died on that cross for each one of us. Jesus was flesh and blood like you and I. But of course after his resurrection all of that changed as we can see from verses 9 through to 11 in this very chapter. Therefore God exalted him and gave him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those things in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of the Father. I've read that twice because it's so vital to our understanding of why Christ died for each one of us. Jesus now exalted to the right hand of God after his resurrection. Immortal. That same divine nature that God has himself. And we are all subject to the Lord himself. All power and all authority has been given to him by God. So let's look at the status. Hebrews 1 and verse 1. Interesting. Book of Hebrews, a few pages on. Chapter 1 and at verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoken time passed to the fathers Abraham, Isaac, Jacob all those worthies of old spoken time passed to the fathers of the prophets has in these days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds it was all done that Christ might come and bring life who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, just like looking at God and yet not God, and upholding his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world. He says let all the angels of God worship him. So even the angels now adore the Lord himself. What a transition, my dear friends, that Christ has gone through. To be lower than the angels for the suffering of death, to being much better than they in life in heaven at this time, at the right hand of God. And he's there to be worshipped, the Lord Jesus Christ. And be remembered as we do each Sunday. Let's turn finally then to 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. Because it tells us about this amazing transition from death to life. That not only Christ experienced 
but indeed we can too. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spirit is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. <laughs> 